When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Petra Boyton about her book, Being Well in Academia, Ways to Feel Stronger, Safer, and More Connected. Welcome to the show, Petra. Thank you for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this very important topic. I know it's of great interest to our listeners. And um, as we get deeper into the conversation, I think we'll be talking about how now more than ever, um, college and graduate students are really aware of their need to have um, emotional and, and mental and academic health supports. Before we dive into all of that, I wonder if you could please tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my name is Petra. I live in the UK. I'm actually here on the Sussex coast by the sea, uh, where thankfully at the moment it's nice and quiet, but earlier in the week it was very stormy. And uh, my work here is a mix of things. I wear a number of different hats. I do research and I teach research. I primarily work in healthcare and have done for the last 20 years. And I also do a lot of work uh, in universities and charities and other organisations around safety and well-being for researchers and students, uh, be that people working in the field or actually just based within a university. Um, and I sort of double that work as an advice columnist or agony aunt. So I give people advice to various life problems that they may be experiencing. Thank you for telling us about yourself. In the book, you you bring us into your journey a bit. And I know in the book, when you refer to yourself as an agony aunt, you said it was a bit ironic that you got that job. But in reading your own journey, I thought it was the perfect job because you could speak with compassion from having had so many experiences. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting kind of job because uh, it used to be extremely popular. I mean, people are often surprised to learn that uh, agony aunts or advice columnists have been in the media for over 300 years in one form or another. And certainly uh, a few decades ago, it was a very popular genre in radio or TV or, or in print media and magazines and things. And as I think media has changed, so has advice giving. Um, but I always wanted, or from uh, as, as long as I can remember, it was a job I wanted. So when I was at school, I often would sit and surreptitiously read advice columns while I was supposed to be studying and think what I might say if I was writing. I, I was reading primarily to help myself, but I'd also imagine what I would do if I was uh, offering advice as well. So um, I try, I think, in my own practice to sort of use the techniques and skills that you would use in a, as an advice columnist to help people, whether that's in face-to-face teaching or in things like this book, which is really a self-help book for academics. Um, So it's signposting them to get help um, and and sort of drawing on my own experiences as well. And it is a self-help book. And you you do 
open by sharing quite a bit about your own experiences with us. Listeners are always interested in how people got from A to B. So can you tell us about how uh, how you got to university and how you decided on your major course of study? Can you take us from A to B and tell us a bit about how that went for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a case study, I think, in... Uh, somebody who wasn't expected to carry on uh, with their studies. Uh, So when I was very young at school, uh, I think uh, when I was at uh, infant school or or sort of uh, my first years in school, one of the teachers had said to my mum, well, she sits in the corner and and she thinks she can read, but she can't. And I actually could read, but they didn't think that I could. And I think that sort of um, I, I suppose this idea of disbelief really has been a, a flavour or a kind of backdrop to my whole uh, academic life. So um, although I could read, one of the things I can't do, I've never been able to do, is understand numbers. Uh, so uh, I'm, uh, it's called dyscalculia, and it's like dyslexia, but it's a, a form of not being able to see um, numbers, although it's more complicated than that. So it also means things like I can't particularly organise um say uh, lots of different um, tasks uh, I can't drive a car I can't read maps uh, I can't follow instructions that are, are mainly numerical um, and because I had this learning difficulty that I think was not even thought about when I was at school and certainly was never diagnosed um, a lot of the teachers thought I was lazy uh, because I was very creative and I would have sort of lots of conversations and I was a real chatterbox and I read voraciously but uh, if you then gave me some very basic math to do, I, I was I couldn't do it at all. Um, and their interpretation was not a learning difficulty, but that I was being willfully disobedient. Um, and so I I did when I left school. I was told to leave school um, without carrying on. Um, in the UK, you can continue from school to college, where you would take A levels, and then you would go on to university. And I was told not to bother doing the A-levels because uh, as far as they were concerned I um, was not capable of this. Um, My family were very supportive and um, I had a good college that did encourage me to take my A-levels and I did get to university but I think I started on the back foot really. I was I I mean I had a learning disability and and it wasn't recognised um, and I didn't recognise it, so I think I'd absorbed a lot of, of messages. And many people, I think, listening will recognise this. That I think those who are listening who are ADHD or autistic or have other um, disabilities or learning difficulties may have absorbed messages, unkind and cruel messages from other people that you are the problem or that you are the one that's somehow deficient or defective. And so I just assumed that I just wasn't very clever. Um, And I also, I think, going into university, I didn't have enough life skills uh, to sort of... uh, I came in late, as it were. I started, you know, at 18, but I came in late in that my peers often had been to a private school, um, had had coaching, had had uh, support, were very, very confident, but also didn't have any problems in understanding what they were being told. So things like going to the library, um, I obviously knew what a library was, but 
I couldn't understand the numbering system to go and find the books. Um, I had to. I, I, I found my library books um, by following somebody off my course, uh, and this was several weeks after we started. And I should have been doing the reading, and I'd been given a reading list, and it had all sorts of numbers beside it, and I didn't know what those numbers meant. Um, and I, I followed somebody from my course one day, and I saw where they went, and that's how I found out where the journals were. Um, so, I mean, I did okay in my degree, but I didn't do as well as, as I probably could have done if I suppose this had been recognised and, and I'd had um, additional support. And I think also arriving at university, um, I, sometimes we call this non-traditional backgrounds now when we're doing sort of widening participation and outreach, but um, my parents had split up when I was uh, 11 or 12 and we didn't have a great deal of money. So... Um, I had a full grant to go to university, which um, meant I could go because otherwise it wouldn't have been possible. But again, I was at college with people who, you know, I remember going to college and, and somebody asking me, where did I holiday? And I said, oh, I holidayed in Cornwall, which is uh, um, in the UK. And they said, oh, yes, we've got a second home there. And um, what, what I meant by it was that I went and slept on my grandparents' floor in their flats for a week or two when we had a holiday. That, that There were people there who had entirely different lives from me. And I think a lot of privileges and opportunities that gave them in many ways advantages. But I think academia works as if those advantages are not there. Uh, they, they carry on as if you know, all the sort of privileges you arrive with are, are by right what you should have. And therefore, those people are, are given more and more opportunities, whereas those of us who are, you know, like me, trying to work out even where a section of the library is, are are very much left behind. And, and although accommodations and study skills and, and other options are available, very often we don't know they're there or we feel unable to ask for them. Um, and despite all of this, I... I I really decided I liked research um, when I was doing my degree. I don't know why I did, because when I first started, I found a lot of the research methods teaching really boring. We used to sit and do what we called labs for three hours every week and sort of crunch data and numbers again, which I didn't understand, and I wasn't interested in it. But as I carried on, I became very interested in sort of practical research with people and research that had a a real sort of social meaning. And so I decided I was going to do a PhD. Um, I couldn't get funding for my PhD, so I decided I would do it myself. Um, I think that was easier in the past than it is now. Um, a lot of places, even if you are self-funding, are quite difficult to access or get onto. But I was lucky in that I got onto a PhD programme. And I think from the first year of my PhD, it was going really well. So by the age of 21, I was engaged. I bought a house. Uh, I had some pets. Uh, I was doing a PhD. Um, I felt that I'd very much overcome sort of a legacy of, of being considered not to be very bright or thick and stupid, as a teacher had labelled me when I was at school, and that really I was, you know, kind of making it. Um, but unfortunately, um, two things happened in when I was 23. So um, I became very ill. Um, I helped somebody at a bus stop one day who had hepatitis, and uh, I caught it, um, um, and I... Um, 
basically was very unwell for a long time with that because it wasn't diagnosed properly and then when it was diagnosed it had led to sort of other damage so I had liver problems and gallbladder problems I had to have several surgeries in my 20s so my PhD was a sort of stop start effort I would sort of be well enough to do it and then I was ill for a long period of time I was exhausted for a long periods of time and I think people listening with chronic illness and pain will recognize that sort of exhaustion that comes with just actually managing to do the things you have to do so in my case that was paid work I was teaching at the time to fund my PhD um, and so that would often have to take priority to my own research but also at the same time as getting ill my relationship broke down so I ended up losing my home and my pets and I had a miscarriage and and it all kind of fell apart really um, and and I, I did something interesting at that time which is I my PhD became my my reason for everything um, I felt like, well, if I could get a PhD, it would open doors, it would probably get me a good job, um, it would make up for past problems, and I didn't have much else to do because everything else I'd done was sort of falling apart, and I kind of felt like it had hope, and, and I, I refer in the book to my PhD being my anchor, and I think it was, but I, I often say about this that anchors can be a steadying influence, but they can also drag you down, and I do feel now looking back I am very proud that I did my PhD I did finish it um, it took me a long time I enrolled um, and I started it full-time and then I went part-time and I had a lot of time sort of off uh, while I was ill so in total it took me about eight years to complete but nine years to actually get my uh, award uh, my doctoral award because I waited to graduate with some of my friends um, so we all graduated in the same year um, so, yeah, I think it's it's this idea of a, a kind of a PhD being a, an opportunity and a, and a great thing. But for me, it also was something that, that kind of held me down because the whole time I was ill, instead of thinking, we'll go and do something else, I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I think that's really why I ended up in academia. I know when a lot of people talk about being academics that they always planned or perhaps somebody in their family was an academic or it was their dream job. It was kind of accidental for me. It was just like, well, I've been really sick. I've lost lots of things. Yes, I have got a PhD now, but I don't really know what else to do. And I felt very deflated uh, when I got my PhD that, that I think I thought it would be it would save me and save everything and I, I do remember distinctly the morning after my viva I'd gone up to stay at the university to have my viva and and I had breakfast alone and uh, I was sitting there thinking well I'm a PhD now but nothing really felt like it had changed and that was a real shock and I refer to it now as a, a PhD come down and you've worked that hard towards something and you feel like it's going to transform your life and it has in many ways but often the key things haven't changed. And so I think for me, this sort of journey through academia was a lot of struggle. It was a lot of resistance on my part. It was proving people wrong that I could do it and, and I was capable. You know, I may not have funding, but I was going to actually finish it. And I think that did lead to some, uh, you know, again, it's I often use an analogy. It's a bit like a domino rally and that something goes wrong and it kind of keeps hitting the next domino along. And in my case when my PhD was nearly at an end, the department I was doing my PhD in 
uh, fragmented very acrimoniously. I, I wasn't involved in it particularly, but my supervisor and other academics were, and I really had no um, academic home. I was able to do my doctorate and finish it, but there was no longer any job for me. So I took another job in research working in healthcare very quickly. And I'm glad I did that because I, I've ended up working in healthcare and I enjoy it very much. But it was kind of just jumping. There was no career plan or progression. I think Quite often when people are talking about their careers, it's done in a very, you know, it's talked about as if people have a really clear, secure job plan. And I think some people are lucky enough to have that. But a lot of us basically just take what we can and do what we can in that moment. And my academic career has very much been that. So sometimes I've been teaching, but sometimes I've been cleaning halls of residence and sometimes I've been typing people's essays. It really depends what work I could get at the time. And I think once I started to move into research jobs and I ended up um, moving sort of through an academic career um, uh, and becoming a senior lecturer, that, um, you know, that there was a lot of problems in academia. There was a lot of toxicity. I, I witnessed a lot of bullying. I experienced it myself. And uh, I ended up with my department that I was working in, again, kind of fell apart and I think this happens a lot in academia, but we don't talk about it, that, that kind of whole scale change happens and people are just kind of thrown out and it's no fault of their own. Um, but it meant that about seven years ago, after having a long career in, in academia, that, that um, my department folded and I took redundancy. Um, and in in that time of working, I'd also had uh, two other miscarriages and I'd had two babies um, who are now uh, 14 and 10, so they've grown up. But I... I really kind of felt like, you know, I was just treading water really. I was doing what I could to just keep, keep going. And and strangely, being made redundant really helped me sort of sit down and think about well, what is it you actually want to do? And what is it that you really enjoy? And for me, that's teaching other people. It's focusing on safety and well-being and it's doing research. And so that's really the a, a kind of a long version of, of how I kind of got from here. It's this sort of journey of... I guess, wanting to do things. And, and I, I probably should have said at the beginning, I think the thing I always wanted to be was a medical doctor, but there's no way with the problems I have around numbers that I would be remotely safe uh, working as a, a clinician in healthcare. But I do now teach clinicians and, and, and it's a job I, I very much enjoy. You talk in the book a little bit that your parents were first-gen um, college students and that from when you were very little, it was in a just part of conversation, even dinner conversation, um, you know, hold your fork this way because you'll need to do that when you're at university, you'll need to have your proper table manners. Do you think they're just sort of matter of factness that you would go to college? Do you think that helped you um, persevere even when teachers were treating you so poorly? I do very much so. And it's something I've found a lot, a lot of the work I do now is helping other young people get into university. So accessing university and, a kind of pathways into college and, and and one of those things is talking about university in the very matter of fact way my parents did um, my dad was working at a teacher training college when I was young and I often used to go with him and he was teaching drama so my, my sister and I would, would kind of run around and play around where they were putting shows on or sometimes if we were allowed to watch the students rehearse and so that for me uh, it, it normalised the fact that, that university was there. So my parents both very much struggled. Uh, my mum was very much encouraged to go to university by her family. My dad was not. But both of them ended up at university and, and enjoyed it and benefited from it. So I think they were determined that 
we would also have that opportunity but they did it in a way that it was they kind of knew what to expect whereas of course when they went to university they got no idea and I try and do that I think with students I work with now in terms of for example um, quite often I'll take them to our local university and we'll go and have a cup of coffee there because it's showing them you can walk onto a campus and and you know with somebody with you if you're allowed to be there and just be in that space and you can see what the university looks like it's not just sitting there on an open day hearing a lecture it's actually noticing what students dress like and talk like and that they're you know very similar to you and they're having a cup of coffee and you know it's it's all kind of of breaking that down but also explaining that you have a right to be in this space that all of us should have a right to be in university spaces if we want to go and learn and want to study and that might be an evening course or a, a short-term thing or a degree or um, a PhD it depends really what you want to do but yes I think my parents were very focused on the sort of manners that you needed to sort of pass in a university that that, that you would possibly give away your your kind of first gen status by not using the fork in the correct way I mean ironically when I went to university myself we kind of got sort of uh, takeaway food and we all ate it with our fingers so I think that kind of a fixation they had on teaching me good table manners was was wasted but I know there is a lot of concern that first gen students have around am I doing things right have I got the right clothes have I got the right table manners have I what do you do in a lecture what are you allowed to bring what what kind of equipment do you require and and particularly with the pandemic a lot of the work I do at the moment around sort of recovery syllabuses and building us more securely in this very uncertain time is 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 telling staff for example that you've got to reiterate in very basic and clear terms over and again what people need to do what's expected and what their classroom presence should be like how you expect them to learn and to be very flexible and, and and accommodating with that so people don't feel uncomfortable or shy and it's also true i think of those who are um doing uh masters or um maybe undergraduate degrees, but certainly postgrad degrees who've done one degree in one country and then are maybe an international student in another country that what you learned in one country may not apply there also. So um, that can be a source of disconnect as well of, of what am I expected to do here and how should I behave? And we could be a lot better, I think, at having these very uh, just very basic conversations of what you need to bring. I, I remember actually, even though my parents did know a lot about university, that when I went for my uh, university interview at the university I ended up choosing, and the teacher, uh, the tutor who was interviewing me, asked me if I had any questions, and I said, "Did I have to bring my own bed?" Uh, because although my parents did know about university, I didn't know with halls of resident what you were supposed to bring. So I think lots of us arriving at university. Are, are uncertain and that continues to again when I went to my first conference I've got no idea what to take I ended up taking you know for three days like bags full of luggage and loads of nail varnish and changes of clothes and all sorts of things because I didn't know what I should which to have with me so I think normalizing it and perhaps that's why the internet and and particularly uh, TikTok and Instagram have been great and, and YouTube in a way of, of people showing now what you can expect what's going to happen where your room will be um what will be in it students before they start university can connect on social media i think all of that's amazing i think it's amazing for the parents as well sending your child off or if you're a um 
in a kinship situation, sending your, your grandchild or your, your niece off. And you may not have had a similar experience yourself. And you don't really have a sense of where you're sending them, especially if travel costs are prohibitive. You're literally sending them off, you know, putting them on the plane or the train. And with these um, visual presentations, whether they're available on the website or on YouTube, the entire family or support system can can view it together and get a sense of where their their loved one is really going. Yeah, I think it really, really helps because for a lot of people, it isn't what they are used to. It's not within their um, experience. And I, I think we have a kind of strange way of working in academia, which is we're supposed to pretend we do know everything, which is often quite risky because, you know, if you don't know and you feel like you can't ask, you know, you can't prepare. But I, I know a lot of universities now have groups where students can socialise together online before they actually meet in, in their residences. But, you know, parents and carers can also have a sense of where they're going and what they need and, and what to look for. Um, and once they're there as well, the fact that we can connect so readily now online means that, you know, you can kind of not be with your loved one, but, but your family member, but kind of feel very connected to them, which Again, I think if you've gone a long way from home, or even if it's not that far away from home, but travel costs are meaning that you can't go home that often, it makes a real difference that you can have that connection and wake up in the morning and say hello or not have to worry so much about, for example, in the past where we would communicate by a letter or perhaps a weekly phone call home. So all of that makes a huge difference. I mean, where it doesn't, I think, is more for estranged students. And I work with a lot of people who are estranged from their family. Um, maybe it's because of... of um, Quite a lot of people, interestingly, with COVID have fallen out over different beliefs about the pandemic or political beliefs. That's really shattered a lot of families. Um, but LGBTQ plus uh, students or faculty quite often are estranged from family. Uh, people have, have changed faith. There's all sorts of reasons why it can happen, just growing apart from family. But it can mean that, that for some uh, students arriving at university, they're having a very different start because while everybody else might be brought by a family or loved one, they're arriving alone or when people are connecting um, and calling home, they aren't able to do that because it's not particularly safe for them or they're no longer welcome. And I think, you know, we are getting better at understanding that and we are getting a lot better at pastoral care. Um, and, and I think that's really important to acknowledge that, that you know, not everybody who starts at university is, for example, the same age. There's more mature students. Uh, there's quite a lot of people who are parents or carers, people who are working part-time. So there's a lot of different people who arrive at university and, and understanding their journeys is, is really important. And this book really puts into words those things that are difficult to understand about our journey. It really keeps inviting us to know that we are worthy, that we are worthwhile, and really lays out systemic problems and gaps in the way the system is set up so that you don't carry the burden and think, oh, this is me, or this is mine to solve, or I've done something wrong. We talk um, sometimes on this channel about what we call the hidden curriculum, and it's things that students don't know in the classroom, like how, how to really use the syllabus or what office hours mean. It sounds like a time when a professor is in their office working, and what it actually means is a time when the professor is available for students to come by call or email. And this book is the companion to the other hidden curriculum. It's how to care for yourself, to get connected, and to 
understand the systems that either are going to work for you or against you so that you can care for your, your entire self while you're a student and not just this idea academia gives us over and over that the only thing that matters is from the neck up. Yeah, and I think it was when I when I was asked to write the book, um, I it was it was sort of strange timing really that it, it, it coincided with I'd been on a um, a sort of training day, and the speaker was talking about making it in academia, and I mean they were a very good speaker and it was very interesting and there were a lot of very useful tips, but a lot of the things that they were advocating were not really. They only made sense if you had a secure salary or funding, uh, that if you had no other disabilities or health problems, that you either didn't have any dependents or if you did, that, that you either had a financial buffer to uh, you know, afford sort of care for them, or that you had a big family network that were on hand and and you know reliable to to help you. And the more the kind of talk went on, I kept thinking, but that wouldn't work for me, or that wouldn't work for my friend, or that wouldn't work for somebody else because there are all these sort of barriers. And the more I thought about it, and they were sort of talking about sort of gateways to success, and it was really very much along the lines of you can do this if you work a long, long, long hours, so much more than you're paid for so there was no sort of suggestion that you might be holding down a second job or that you might have other responsibilities or that you might have hobbies and friendships in a life outside university for a lot of the discussion it felt like that the university was like one big hobby um, and there were sort of no discussions about say for example conferences might be difficult if you had to pay up front or that you know you were expected to cover it yourself or it was in your own spare time or that you would have to juggle I mean for example in my case um, uh, my youngest son um, is disabled so if I want to go away for any length of time that takes an enormous amount of planning and even if creches are provided which as we know at most conferences that happen in real time uh, and, and sort of not, not virtually uh, you know most of them don't provide creches if they did he wouldn't be able to use those so you know in some ways actually the pandemic has made some of this easier in that it's, it's opened up the online working it's allowed us to connect I know some people have actually found it more limiting but a lot of people I think who were previously excluded due to cost or finance or disability or access um, have managed to progress you know to a degree but I think the systems of sort of competitiveness and bullying and toxicity and and sort of perfection and this sort of constant obsession with metrics you know how much have you published and not just how much have you published but where you know it can't just be published you've got to publish loads and it has to be in a particular journal my particular journey through academia because I ended up in healthcare was in this sort of hyper competitive medical world where um, you know, uh, uh, one of the jobs I had was we were working with over international students on a on a program, and um, I, I was getting funding so that instead of them having to pay because most of them were in low and middle income countries, we would cover their costs so they could learn online with us. And and I raised a, a considerable amount to have hundreds of students to be able to study with us. But because that money wasn't a research grant, it was never count counted. So a lot of people who are 
in academia will recognize this sort of strange system where whatever you do isn't good enough. And so I think when I was at that seminar listening and being told all these sort of ways you could achieve, it was still making me feel like, but if you don't achieve, it's going to be blamed on you. It's your fault. And most of the things that go wrong in academia are not your fault. I mean, it's true, you can mess up, and I've certainly messed up loads. I've, I've made lots of errors in my research career, but I recognize those. There's a difference between that and the sort of barriers that stop me progressing as I fairly should, or kind of a lack of understanding. And I, I think I talk in the book as well that, that, you know, when I had my miscarriages, they were secret because I hadn't felt safe to tell anyone at work I was pregnant because I was worried if I did, I would look, lose out, you know, career-wise. So I think a lot of us are experiencing things where, you know, it's not set up for most of us. And that's why I think when I wrote the book, I wanted to sort of make it really clear. And I'm glad that has come over to you in reading it, that, that it is, there are lots of things you can do to help yourself, but many of the things that set you back are structural, they're embedded, they are deeply part of the fabric of academia and you struggling with them because academia is an ableist and racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic space um, and in very classist space that, that you know you are going to be struggling not because you've done something wrong but just because you're in a space that is not accommodating for you at all and on page 77 of the book you explain something called the unrecovery star. And the unrecovery star is, is this diagram um, that uh, listeners can find. And we'll, we'll provide links and information attached to the podcast for listeners. Um, and the unrecovery star really invites you to draw a star shape and write all of those factors that are affecting you so you can stop assuming that you are the cause of your difficulties. and. Um, on the example in the book, it, one, of, one of the spokes of the star is racism and another is sexism and ableism and many of the things that you just listed now. And, and each person would be able to add in more based on their um, unique being in this world. Um, and as you look at that unrecovery star, you can kind of get a sense of what you can and can't change. And when I saw that, for me, it was very validating. I needed to take a little time and sit with it. Um, sometimes when something is validating, um, it gives you permission to feel and you need to just stop and feel um, before you can move forward and really reimagine how you're going to see yourself. Okay, if this is how the star is set up and I want to get either my community college degree, my graduate degree, my master's degree, my PhD or my postdoc or maybe several things on that menu, how can I be conscious that these things on this unrecovery star are not within my power to change and I want to get this degree? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the recovery star is something that's created by a group of um, mental health service users in the UK, uh, and they're called Recovery in the Bin, or RITB. And um, they are a really interesting collective in that they've got a lot of very um, strong criticisms of, of mental health services in the UK, uh, entirely valid and reasonable ones. And they speak from a service user perspective, for want of a better word. So they're 
are people who have used mental health services in different forms. And the recovery syllabus um, uh, or, or sort of recovery syllabus or recovery colleges are something that has been established to support people with mental health problems, um, particularly those who've been severely mentally unwell. And they will do activities and, and uh, all sorts of things um, around sort of life skills, mindfulness and other uh, activities where it kind of is supposed to both enhance their well-being and help them back into work. But I think that we can already see a problem with that in that the assumption is that being better is that you're in the workplace, um, whereas being better could be any number of other things that don't revolve around sort of the workplace. But also that a lot of people who have got severe mental health problems found that these these ventures were quite patronising um, and they were also not accounting for um, these very real structural factors that, that you in many ways can do little or nothing about. And so I think people were talking about being sent to sort of resilience training or, or recovery colleges and recovery training and asked to sort of think kind thoughts or to be mindful or to be, you know, change the way they viewed themselves and to sort of be um, more engaged with their lives. But they were thinking, well, I can do all those things and I can be positive and I can think mindfully and, and, and I can and be present and I can be positive and all those sort of stuff. But when I go and apply for a job, I won't get it because of perhaps a visible disability or the fact of, of the colour of my skin or what other prejudices an employer might bring to bear. And so I think with the STAR, there is a, is a recovery STAR which is very different and it's all about kind of thinking positive. They wanted to show the structural issues and I was so pleased. I, I, I asked them if I was allowed to reproduce the image in the book and it's the only image in the book that I've reproduced from elsewhere. And, and I, I was very very proud and, and very touched that they said I could and 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 it's been really lovely to have it in there because I think your reaction has been similar to many other people's in that it's it's really I think affected them emotionally in many ways some people have found it quite moving it's made some people quite tearful it's as you say validating some people have become quite angry and I think one of the things I do try and explain early on in the book is that it needs to go at your pace you need to read it at your pace because some of it will make you upset and I think we are allowed to be angry and allowed to be sad about things that have happened in our own lives or that we see happening to other people um and, and I guess the challenge I then had in, in sort of exposing these issues and trying to do it in a way that was clear and, and empowering was how do I, how can I be honest with people that lots of parts of academia are broken, as, as are many areas of our lives. You know, healthcare is one, politics is one, lots of bits of our lives are broken. But learning is still a wonderful thing education is a wonderful thing knowledge is a wonderful thing the wanting to get on and, and maybe gain more qualifications or change your circumstances or just learn because you love it and, and you can't think of anything else you'd rather do than be focused on this wonderful special interest of yours how could I write something ethically that that wasn't so you know um negative that it made people feel well I should just leave now I'm never going to be welcome but equally warning them that actually if you're coming in as a minoritized or marginalized person it may be harder for you it may not be you know it may not be at all and I hope with the book that there was enough you know information and resources that people could get some help if not for themselves then from other organizations but that also they go in 
with a, a very clear idea of what to expect. So they're not going in blaming themselves, but they're also not going in imagining it's awful. And I think that's a real challenge for those doing higher degrees, you know, people who are doing doctorates, that, that they're kind of thinking, well, I really want to do this, but will I get a job? And if I get a job, will it be terrible? How do we kind of nurture that demand and those desires to study and, and, and grow while also sort of making transparent bits of academia broken in such a way that we now feel we can stand together and do something about it. Uh, you know, that, that to me was the challenge in writing the book. You talk in the book that openly that this is in the self-help genre, this is a self-help type book, and you go through what self-help is and isn't, and you help people understand what kind of self-help to take and what kind of may look nice and shiny, particularly if a, if a celebrity is providing it or it's just got such beautiful packaging that it's quite easy to absorb. You give us the red flags as well. Can you talk a bit about, for listeners who are really looking for self-help, um, because access to you know sitting down with a professional is not something that they're going to have, they're going to use the book form of self-help instead because that is what's accessible and that will aid them in their journey. What do you look for in self-help and maybe some of the ethics that guided you in creating yours? I mean, I think a good way to begin is to ask people to think about the kind of format that they would like um, to take help. And and I mentioned this in the book, I think I call it a slice of advice, where it's sort of getting people to think about in what format would you like it? Because I think we're all different. Um, We're all motivated by different persuasions and I think also that it will change during our lifespan or even during the course of a particular crisis or event um, so some people for example really really appreciate almost like a kind of boot camp style somebody kind of shouting at you and saying you must do this and you must do that and, and, and very clear uh, sort of specifications of what to do but also quite an aggressive style some people like a kind of chatty uh, explorative, um, reflective, kind of nurturing approach. Some people like to be comforted and cared for. Some people want it to be kind of physical care, so they're quite drawn towards things that would be involve sort of body-related therapies, be that sort of sports massage or regular massage or whether it's, you know, bathing or um, beauty care or, or whatever. And some people have kind of absolutely couldn't stand that and would really, really hate it. Some people, for example, like crafting and embroidery and knitting and sewing and and making beautiful things and some people want to be in nature so there's all sorts of ways you know that you might find things speak to you and I think that it's important to kind of think about what you would and wouldn't like or wouldn't wouldn't accept in terms of of accepting care and particularly self-help because that will that will be directing you to where you want to go. And that can be a great thing because it might be actually taking you to the right place and the right message for you at that moment. But equally, it might be taking you somewhere that's a bit dodgy, and I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a minute. I think the, the key message with self-help, um, there's a very famous uh, agony aunt called Anna Rayburn um, based in the UK, and she has a really good example that self-help is really taking you one small step further so when you talk to an advice columnist or when you talk to somebody on a helpline or if you are picking up a self-help book in the library or the bookstore it's not going to be the one thing that changes your life I mean sometimes people say that but generally it's going to do a small thing it's going to move you a little bit further 
And perhaps reading that book means that you now have the confidence to call the helpline or perhaps now you could speak to your supervisor or perhaps you could make that doctor's appointment you've been putting off. So I think that that's a good thing to do to begin with is, is what kind of help do I like or would I accept? And, you know, it's having realistic expectations. It's not going to transform everything. But I think when you've done that, it's also good to look at I mean, we've we've referred to it as self harm, and I think sometimes people who struggle with self harm themselves um, or, or, or don't quite like that type. And it's not meant to be sort of facetious or putting them down or, or kind of uh, detracting from from um, self harm and why we do it. It's saying that actually the thing you turn to when you're in crisis could do you more harm than good. And so the things that you would really be looking for in in that uh, situation, whatever self-help book you're looking for, um, I mean, mine's an academic one, but you might be looking for a self-help book on parenting or mental health or love or um, managing your money. It's that, first of all, you know, somebody's credentials is important, but they can be, you know, they can be deceptive. People can pretend to have a doctorate when they don't. People can pretend to be, you know, extremely famous or very wealthy when in fact, you know, that they're none of those things. So I think look at the credentials and maybe follow them up, do a bit of research, see what people talk about this person. Are they spoken about positively? And then I think it's about what are they encouraging you to do? So things that are encouraging you to do stuff that would not necessarily benefit you um, quite often there's a sort of stuff around coping where people joke about say for example alcohol but actually if you're struggling with alcohol and, and you're trying to aim for sobriety the last thing you want is advice that sort of makes jokes about having a stiff drink so I think it's about are they encouraging you towards things that would be unhealthy are they encouraging you towards things that make you upset are they pushing you out of a comfort zone is it things like they're suggesting you know a shopping spree going and spending lots of money is the answer to the problem when of course we know that isn't likely to help and again if you've got problems with shopping or gambling is not the advice you need to hear and things around is it simplistic we quite often hear things like you know a bubble bath will make a difference and actually sometimes you know if you're feeling really miserable um, a nice warm bath is very comforting, but it's not going to change a, a whole range of very complicated, difficult circumstances. So it's, are they kind of making things simplistic? Is it kind of commercialized? Is it that you have to spend a lot of money to access the services when actually you could find the same information for free elsewhere? Um, in the book and elsewhere in my work, I spend a lot of time signposting people to free information. Um, and that is more challenging, I think, in some parts of the world if that information isn't available in different languages or in culturally appropriate ways. But a lot of the time there is free information you can use or adapt to your own needs. And so self-help becomes very um, challenging or difficult if, if somebody's actually saying, well, I will give you the answers, but you have to pay a subscription, you have to pay a fee. Obviously, I'm not talking about therapy here, because I think when you're accessing a therapist, that's a different relationship, and you should be paying for them. But you would also still be looking for maybe a therapist that's very transparent in their practices, um, that also has a sliding fee scale that perhaps does do work for free, um, and has information and signposts to you again. So somebody reputable, a self-help book that's reputable is not just going to say, read this book and follow me as some kind of self-help um, master. It's going to be saying, read these other books, look at this other information, go to this um, 
free website where you can get reputable and, and helpful information. So I think those are a few things people can do if they're looking for stuff. The other thing is, I think, is to shop around to use different information. It's becoming more challenging, I think, in this current era where there's so much information that's marketed and monetized, but also used, I think, for um, really quite worrying purposes. Again, whether that's to sow dissent or to cause problems. I mean, we're seeing a lot of this around COVID, where there's a huge amount of misinformation around vaccination and healthcare, that people are often made very frightened and don't know what to do um, because somebody is giving very, very poor advice. We also often see it tied up with having to buy additional products. So, for example, you know, it's not just that you're paying to access the advice, but that you need to buy um, maybe it's herbal products or um, particular um, other self-help books or resources or um, body cream or, or all kinds of things. I mean, milkshake, I, I, I analyze self-help books as well as write my own. And I, there was one particularly famous genre where not only did they have an award-winning book series, but it was also you could buy special uh, drink smoothies. You know, those are the kind of things I think you should be alert to. That is this person really here to help me or are they here to make money off my suffering? That, that should be the question to ask. And you... You give us some some good agony and advice in the book. You you tell us that it is normal to face numerous problems over a lifetime, and you caution us against anyone who wants to fix us. Um, can you can you kind of normalize for us that life is going to have all these ebbs and flows? Yeah, and I think it's actually really topical at the moment that we may have seen this uh, in response to the pandemic that that when we began to go into the pandemic and lots of lockdowns and other different cultural and societal changes, there was a lot of talk about mental health. And in fact, I think mental health has become, I'd like to say it's more recognised, but I don't think it has. I think we talk about it more. Um, but I think it's a kind of a bit of a vague coverall term at the moment in that a lot of what we're talking about in terms of mental health isn't really mental health. What we're talking about at the moment is people are frightened or anxious or bereaved. They're grieving. They're grieving maybe people they've lost or opportunities or lives they've lost. Um, they may be very lonely and isolated or frustrated. They might be struggling with poverty um, or housing. Now, all of those things and more, if you're living with an existing mental illness or physical health problem or disability, if, if you're already struggling and then you add other problems to it, um, it can exacerbate mental health problems. It can cause or worsen them. But it doesn't necessarily follow that because you feel angry or sad or frightened that you are mentally unwell and that the fix is necessarily a mental health fix, be that therapy or, or whatever. And I'm not talking people out of seeking care if they need it, because I think whether it's a physical or mental health care and you need it, you should be able to access it. But it's more the case that... You know, if, for example, you're a student and you're struggling to access your studies because um, uh, you have, uh, say, for example, I was working with a student recently who um, uses crutches to access the building, but they don't have proper lift access. And the beautifully newly appointed building has a very thick carpet that's extremely challenging to walk on crutches with. In that situation, 
um, you know, the student is very unhappy because the university is not actually making accommodations. For example, helping them with a lift to the floor where they need to get to their studies or hosting their studies in a different location or allowing them to access their course remotely because they've gone back to face-to-face teaching. All of those things are making the student angry and upset and unhappy and rightfully so. So I think that, that you know, all of us will go through life. And it's partly why I think I start the book by by laying this sort of story out of mine. I mean, interestingly, as, as both someone who does research and as an agony aunt, really my job most of the time is telling other people's stories. I'm not entirely comfortable telling my own, not because I'm embarrassed or ashamed of my my situation things that have happened to me but because it becomes about me and really I want to signpost you to lots of other places where I want to tell you how lots of other people have been through things and share their stories and and amplify their their voices and and tell you about other amazing people who are doing similar work um but I I think that that I I did talk about it because it normalizes the fact that life happens you know, lots of things happen to us that are beyond our control or something we've made happen. I talked earlier about that domino rally. I made a series of not always the best choices because I wasn't in a space to really kind of think clearly and, and get myself into a good space. Or I didn't have the opportunities, um, mainly financially, I was struggling. So I couldn't make choices because I had to do the first thing that came along to help me out of a, a poverty trap. Um, I think that's true of all of us, this thing is that we can expect stuff to happen unexpected and perhaps predictable. Um, and so we are allowed reactions to those. We are allowed to go and get information. And the information that helps us best might be about our mental health, but more often it might be things around how to manage our finances or how to um, navigate how a university works in the case of academia or how we might be able to communicate better um, with our colleagues or make friends or find friends or cope when we've lost a a loved one or even a pet. There's all sorts of things that that may be going on in our lives where information is still self-help but we tend to think of self-help is firmly in a kind of either a commercialized, you know, fix yourself and become a better human type genre or a kind of therapeutic style genre. Whereas a lot of the stuff I do, um, it's, it's quite mundane in a way, but it's giving people access to basic information they already should have to help them make decisions that hopefully stop a bad situation getting any worse and if it is getting worse that they can go and get help and this book can also be a benefit to uh, family members of people who are either professors or students and people who are friends we've talked about how some people are estranged from their family Uh, some people have a have a small support group outside of their family Um, and we'll all reach these rough times um, where we need uh, a friend to help us. And so you you give a whole section uh, around page 70 and, and definitely page 80 through 84. You talk about how to help a friend and you give some really concrete advice that really resonated with me. Um, I recently went through a, a fire and, and a mudslide and then a COVID-19 hit. And um, so in my particular county, we had three... Uh, federally declared disasters in three years. Um, And so I learned a lot about what doesn't help when people were trying to help me. They met well, but it did not help. And yours, I 
um, opportunities to help that you gave. I could tell they were very well researched and based on feedback of what doesn't help when. And so things that you list that are important to keep in mind when you're a well-meaning friend is don't take over. Avoid competition, which is when someone listens to your story and then they decide to add theirs. It's what it's not a welcome way to um, offer uh, empathy. Um, and you talk about giving practical support, about keeping confidences, and about being sensitive to people's circumstances. An example you gave was don't bring over food that they can't store, or they can't eat. And I know as someone who went through the, the first two disasters on that list, people were trying to give me belongings. And I kept saying, I literally have nowhere to put them. Um, so this this book will also help for people who are on, um, on the outside, so to speak. You're not the student yourself. You're not the professor yourself, but you are in some uh, connection to them and, and want to step in. Can you talk about how to be an ally and a friend in when you see someone you care about in a difficulty? Yeah, and I wanted to say as well, I'm sorry to hear about all the things you've been through. And I think that that it's one of the, the really difficult things about sort of advice giving is that that in, in many ways, I think people feel very helpless when they hear that something's happened. And so that often does lead to these situations where either people, you know, that for all the right reasons, say the wrong things or kind of infuriating or unhelpful things, or they panic and freeze and, and, and don't do anything at all. And that's particularly, I think, the case of being an ally is, is not knowing really what to do. Or I think increasingly universities and other workplaces are, are doing sort of allyship and bystander training or upstander training, which is great, but it tends to be a bit kind of coarse in a box. So you kind of practice some stuff and then when you actually have to apply it. So for example, in your situation where you've had sort of three major and, and, and traumatizing events one after the other of people kind of thinking, well, I, I don't know what to do in that case, so I'm going to do nothing at all. And I, and I think sometimes it's about asking the person even, you know, what can I, what would help you? Um, that doesn't always work because I think sometimes when you're very stressed, being asked is another thing you've got to deal with and makes you cross. But it can be things like, you know, um, I, I want to, uh, you know, bring some food over. What would you like to eat? Give somebody the option to say, I don't want to eat or I would like soup or I'd like whatever. So it, it's about, I think, being not afraid to to do sort of offer help. And, and I, I have been, again, it was a, a concern I had when writing it that I'd become so prescriptive about there are right ways to do things and give help. Um, bear in mind, we are so diverse and there are sort of lots of cultural differences and social differences and personal differences that, that I, I didn't want to be so clear that actually people felt either they couldn't do it or that they would just only do what I said in the book and they wouldn't be trying anything else. I mean, I think all of us can relate to a situation where somebody's struggling and we've tried to help and we got it wrong and maybe we feel like we made it worse, but we persevered and we said, oh, I'm sorry, I've messed up. Let's try again. Um, you know, we are all human. And I think there is a danger, particularly around social media and discussions about perhaps not so much mental health, but allyship. Of, of There are very strict ways of doing it correctly. And if you don't do it correctly, you're a bad person. That maybe means that sometimes when we're in crisis, bearing in mind a lot of us are helping each other while we're having our own crises, that we kind of either don't feel too scared to do something or that we get very distressed by not doing it right or, or being kind of shamed or blamed for, for 
giving something a go. I mean, that said, I think there are still ways that we can improve and do stuff. And that's why I think I wrote in the book lots of different ideas and lots of conversation starters and ways to kind of get people to try and begin a dialogue and to see the world through somebody else's um, shoes or, you know, somebody else's eyes. So you're thinking, you know, how could I best help here? And sometimes your best help is doing nothing. But I do go through some examples of if you, for example, witness somebody else um, struggling, that, you know, that you might go and offer your help, that you might go and talk to them. Maybe it's on or offline that you kind of flag that you're there. If you notice that they are in danger, as long as it's not going to put you and them both in more danger, that perhaps you go and chat to them. I think when somebody is experiencing bullying or harassment um, or other kinds of uh, ableist or racist or homophobic abuse, that you don't just let them kind of deal with it and then say afterwards, oh, that was really awful, I feel bad for you, is that you might be working within your own communities to sort of address those those um, prejudices separately, but equally that you would maybe go to the person at the time and say, are you okay, you know, should we go together, should we move away from this place, um, that you're kind of not escalating the situation, but you're making it very clear you are with that person and you're by them. Um, there are things like mental health first aid course, um, allyship courses, um, bystander courses, uh, psychological first aid courses, um, and some of those I link to in the book because they're sort of free resources people can use as well but I think that sort of in this at this particular point in time with so many things happening in the world and we can feel very trapped by it and very helpless that that actually it's not just about learning how to look after ourselves but some basic skills on caring for other people so that it's timely that we're not pressuring them to do things they don't want to do that we're kind of alert to their signals that that we listen if they say I don't want that help and I think that we normalize that is that you know i think if help is given uh, particularly again if you're a minoritized person it's just you're supposed to be so grateful for any small crumb that you're offered that that people feel like they can't say actually that's unhelpful or um painful or difficult and, and a good example of this actually is something we've seen increasingly provided in workspaces where people are told to do yoga or mindfulness now some people really like yoga or mindfulness and they find it very helpful and relaxing and you know it gives them clarity and and it really is empowering but some people physically can't actually move into positions for yoga some people find the act of, of relaxation or the act of mindfulness and kind of letting go or becoming in the moment or doing breathing activities um, is actually quite alarming and frightening it can trigger panic attacks it can make you feel very very unsafe and we're not told this. So, of course, if we do do those things, say, for example, you try yoga and it's painful or you try a mindfulness session at work and you find yourself feeling like you're about to have a panic attack, you assume that it's you rather than the fact that this is not an appropriate form of um support or, or uh, care or, or just a, a, a sort of form of self-help it's not right for you and that can apply for a lot of things that it may be for those in academia that, that you're given study skills but they don't work for you because you have a learning disability um, or you're neurodivergent that it's it's feeling able to say that doesn't work and I think a lot of my my jobs currently are around sort of working with organizations to say to them this isn't a one-size-fits-all that you can't just offer things and say we're going to offer the self-help and be cross with people when they don't accept it or they don't like it that quite a lot of it is 
you know, not going to work. And it's also where I think when we're offering allyship or any kind of friendship or care, that it comes as a dialogue, that we aren't going in there to fix somebody or to change them or to cure them or to make them be what we want them to be. We're there to kind of empower them to say what does and doesn't help. And we might not be the best person at that point. We might say, oh, okay, I can't help you, but student support services can or the chaplaincy can or this helpline can or um, your doctor is the best place to help you. Or, you know, I can make a cup of tea and listen, but actually who you really need to speak to is another colleague. So I think that, that we need to be aware that when we ask for help we're allowed to refuse it but also when people refuse help it's not the end of the world or we're a terrible person it's a signal that they're exercising healthy boundaries and we are allowed to say okay well I'll try helping or perhaps I can't help but I can still be your friend or colleague and in the section about being a friend to someone who's in a in a difficult spot and I know my example was fairly extreme but it's it's the truth um, is that one thing that we can all do is to reinforce the messages of that person's value. And I, I knew that was incredibly important for me for friends who texted and they said, I don't have any ideas for, for what to say or what to do or what to send you. But I just want you to know how much I care about you and texting back and saying, can you just send me a text like that once a week? That is perfect. And I'm going to forget. So in about a week, can you read, you don't even have to retype it. Just go ahead and resend that same text. And can you just check in on me whenever you have a chance with like two sentences? Um, Because that actually does mean a lot to me. And so I had some friends who they were like, that's what I can do. And I said, yes. And that meant so much to me because it it reinforced that you're not going it alone. You do matter. We are thinking about you. And while we do need other tangible forms of help, and your book does a an amazing job in chapter by chapter breaking down um, what a situation is so that particularly a person in, who's struggling, who's trying to make um, intellectual sense of um, systemic problems of um, emotional concerns, they can read it and put themselves in a framework and look through these lists of ideas, um, support networks and choices, and really just keep coming back again and again to the sections of this book as needed and using them in different ways at different times. And so friends who don't have, you know, expertise in, in a particular form of help can also just be someone who keeps reaffirming your value and that you matter to them as your friend, even though, you know, your belongings burned up. Um, They don't need anything from you right now. They just need you to know that they're still your friend. Yeah, I think it's crucial. I absolutely agree. And I'm glad that you had that, that, you know, friends that did that. Because I think, again, currently people are often afraid of because they feel they need to fix things so i think it's that thing you talked about people wanting to give you things or or, you know give you give you um equipment or clothing or, or items for the home or whatever it was and you had nowhere to store them i think it's that feeling that we have to do something um and 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 we often see uh, you know when there's a, a disaster occurring that that you know people are are keen to kind of do something and 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 they feel it has to be big 
but actually the the small acts as you say of, of, of checking in regularly and being there maybe just saying to somebody look I'll just I'll be here at the other end of a call and you can just text me or call to me or message me or, or we'll be on on um, the phone together or a, a call or, you know zoom or whatever it is and you can just talk about whatever you want to talk about or you can cry or you can be angry and I will listen um, you know or maybe writing and sending cards to somebody if that's possible it isn't always but if that's something that's that's possible I mean I think it's it's about the idea of keeping a dialogue going and keeping that sense of love and care and and showing somebody yes that they are valued when when perhaps everything else is gone or they feel very unloved and unwanted without kind of placing demands upon them so I think that's the other thing that when you're sort of supporting someone who's saying I'm here for you and I love you you don't have to reply you just need to know this that you're not requiring them to sort of do much but of course if they want to they know they can and the other thing I think and and you may relate to this and I think other people listening will certainly understand that I think when something has happened to you and we're all very different and all of us will have our own you know experiences of distress or trauma you know as, as we're kind of listening here is that you you often find that people are pretty good in the immediate aftermath um, because they're shocked and they want to know you're okay but sustaining that over time and just being there I think is is also really important because quite often when someone's been bereaved or um, they've had a, a natural disaster or they've lost something in fire or you know maybe they've lost their job very suddenly or you know something something quite traumatic has happened maybe there's been an accident uh, you know that that the people quite often are good at rallying rounds albeit not always with what you want at, at the very beginning but three months later six months later a year later when you still need to know that somebody's just there for you maybe it's an anniversary or perhaps it was just that they were thinking of you in that moment that 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 contact is there and I think when we want to help others we underestimate that these small acts of you know you were on my mind I I had a a friend of mine the other day who just messaged me out of the blue and said for some reason you're on my mind I don't know why maybe you're fine but maybe you're not and I just wanted to know you were okay and I thought that was just a really lovely thing and I was fine and we were able to have a quick chat and and it was all good but I think that if you feel like you don't know what to do you know a good thing is just to say I'm really sorry I, I hope you're okay I'm here for you if you need me um, maybe there's not much I can do, but you, you need to know you are loved. You know, that's a start. It keeps that dialogue going. Maybe just checking in, you know, a few weeks later or even a day later, no need to reply, I'm here, I'm around. You know, the person hopefully can tell you if they don't want that and maybe you can read into it that if they're not really engaging that you might just send something every so often so they don't feel pressured. I mean, a lot of this is just is just working it out and, and I think – in a crisis, you know, we're not always going to behave in predictable ways. But if you care about somebody, you can kind of work around that. And sometimes it's about educating yourself so that um, perhaps you send them an initial text and say they're very careful, but then you go away and find out about grief or you go and read up on, you know, um, what to do if, if somebody's suddenly lost their job so that you feel that you understand them a little better. You're not going to get in touch and tell them how to think or feel, but you will be better able to approach approach them sympathetically i mean i think the other thing to add to that is something that people appreciate seeing is that that you are 
in your kind of your private words of comfort are echoed by your public acts and that doesn't have to mean what you're doing with the person but i think people have talked a lot about how um particularly around um racism where um you know there's been particular points where um you know events have happened and there's been a lot of interaction on social media around uh, sort of a, a challenging racism or people for example making their profiles black or, or whatever it is or posting kind of messages um and maybe privately messaging somebody and saying oh i'm i'm, I'm sorry i hope you're okay but also that not being matched by any other change in, in the workplace or in friendship groups, perhaps, you know, they could be challenging racism in their own families, but they don't. So I think that sometimes people feel aggrieved if there are private messages of, of support, but they don't ever get matched up publicly. So again, if we take academia as an example, you know, if you're working in an environment where there's a really awful bullying boss targeting one particular person, but all of you in the workplace could actually stand together and challenge that boss, or all of you together could go and speak to HR, or all of you together could talk to your union, and you could make it really obvious that none of you are going to collude in that behaviour, but you don't. But privately, you say to the person, oh, I saw you being shouted at today. Isn't it awful? I feel bad. I think that's when people understandably do get very angry and upset that they feel your public persona doesn't match your private words. So, you know, it's just worth thinking about when you are, are supporting a friend that you can do so in ways that they feel comforted that it's not all about you, but also that you're not in some way being a bit hypocritical, that, that privately you're helping, but you never actually stand up in public and, and do something practical. That is really helpful to say when you've trusted someone and then you find out that they're not authentic, that's adding a new trauma uh, to a person who's in a recovery process. Yes, and I think it's 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 it can come in several forms. It can come in the form of, of what we just talked about as somebody who privately um, does things but publicly doesn't match it within their deeds. It can also be in situations where um, something has happened, uh, you know, when somebody seems very eager to be at the front of it, but they don't sustain that activity or they somehow make things worse, or perhaps it seems to be more about them uh, than the person who's directly affected. And we, we may have seen these around some, you know, natural disasters where, somebody's directly affected but a relative who isn't is making an enormous big fuss about how they are doing all the fundraising and how they are a real hero but actually the person who really needs our attention and care is the person who's lost everything so it's not to say you can't fundraise or you can't help or you can't send kind messages it's just about kind of I suppose reflecting on what you're doing and your motivation and are you doing it for the best reasons and it's the same thing with the kind of temptation to fix people that 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 we all want to fix we all want to stop people being in pain or suffering but sometimes what we need to do is listen sometimes what we need to do is take direction sometimes what we need to do is back off completely or sometimes what we need to do is not really what we want you know it might be when there's an exciting fundraiser for a disaster happening and people want to be on the front of the kind of fundraiser and shake tins and, and, and kind of being seen in public but behind the scenes there's sort of financial um, accounts to be settled and worked out and volunteering there or somebody to help clean up or, or you know make refreshments and that's not quite as exciting and so 
you know, volunteers are not there. It's it's about how can I be the most used to somebody in this time um, in a practical way that, that is respectful and, and culturally appropriate and, and not kind of taking over and, and also not making them feel pressured. And as you said, adding to the trauma, you know, if somebody's very distressed and they don't want to talk, you know, although we have loads of mental health initiatives talking about how time to talk is vital and we must break the stigma through language actually sometimes you just sitting there and letting them cry or letting them be very still or letting them be angry or letting them just get on with their day is the best thing you could do for them i i appreciate that so much i was thinking about um how i told friends don't ask me questions just take me to the movies i i didn't want to be put in a situation to talk um it wasn't it wasn't helpful for me at that point and and of course there are times when it is helpful to talk i was thinking as you are listening about how on page 79 in the book you refer to something called the ring theory and the ring theory is um really helpful both for someone who's who's going through something difficult and for someone who is watching someone they care about go through something difficult and the ring theory is where the center ring is the person who's actually having the problem and then Rings surrounding that would be other people who are in some way connected to that person. And as you explain in the ring theory, the person in the center uh, is the person um, you may not share your problems with. You may not complain about the situation to. You don't dump in. Dumping always goes out and comfort always goes in. So the person in the center ring, the comfort's always going in towards them and the venting and dumping is always going away from them. And I was trying to explain that when I was going through the, uh, the difficulties, I would say, I'm the center of the tree. If you imagine there's a tree, I'm at the center ring of the tree and you're not even the bark. So please stop complaining to me about forest management. Go find the forest ranger. But I am the tree and you are not the tree. Um, so I like the ring theory. I think I think maybe that explains it better. Yeah, I think I mean I I can't take credit for it. Um, other people did, and we can put a link in in um, to show where people get more information about it. But I I found it very helpful. Again, as I think a lot of us are fixers. You know, I, my instinct when I see somebody being upset and unhappy is I want to go in and help. But equally, I think that that we end up, and particularly I think within the pandemic or in other times of sort of social unrest or where you've been living with with difficulty for a long time. So I think people, when they've been talking about, say, disability or racism or homophobia or transphobia, um, where you've got kind of a, a long-term disadvantage or oppression, that somebody is in the middle of a crisis, but you also have crises. And you kind of, your crises are also valid. You should be allowed to talk about them. But the person who's come to you saying, you know, I, I've just lost a relative or I've just lost my job or I'm really scared how I'm going to make ends meet this month, you know, doesn't really want to hear about when that happened to you too. And I think this can be tricky because quite often conversationally, we do want to reassure people and sometimes the sort of similarity and sameness is actually quite powerful. So again, you know, in the start of the book, you've got me telling how I had experienced some really great things in, in, in my academic career and some really awful things in both my life and my academic career. And, and you know, if I was telling you that story, 
you know, sometimes it actually might really help to hear, you know what, I really struggled as well. Um, but, you know, I, I did manage to get a job in the end. That that might make me feel better. But equally, if I was really upset in that moment, hearing, oh, yes, that was the same for me, and then the conversation diverts to you, that would be a problem. So I think we've, we've often got the challenge of, you know, I, I try and balance again my own story of, of, of how do I tell it in a way that makes people have hope, that makes them think it's possible. But I don't in- encourage them to put themselves through miserable circumstances because, you know, I was suffering, nobody else should have to as well. I don't I don't think it's healthy to ca- encourage people to do that. And also, how do I not impose myself on their stories so that when they're trying to tell me of their struggles, that I'm not immediately jumping in with mine. So I, I think that, that, that sort of um, approach to the person who's immediately telling you about their problems is the person that you offer comfort to and you listen to. But if you need to seek help with your own problems, that goes elsewhere. And that can include the fact that if we're giving pastoral support or kind of um, um, volunteering or any kind of um, compassionate care to other people, that sometimes their disclosures are things that we need help with. And, and I think that's something that's very true in my wider academic work. And it, it fits much more with sort of safety and well-being that quite often it might be our colleagues or our students or the the participants in our research or just people we meet within the sort of wider frameworks of our research are going through all kinds of difficult and distressing events. It's true of those teaching in schools at the moment or people working in healthcare that we are witnessing all kinds of really difficult and distressing things and people's reactions to the pandemic are quite often baffling and upsetting and quite often completely understandable but still upsetting that that we kind of need someone else to so for example those who work in healthcare should have places to um, offload within therapy and certainly therapists do that they would have a supervisor or a colleague that they are able to sort of um dump onto in terms of, of all of their feelings and their experiences and sort of decompress uh, and, and and go through, uh, sort of reflect on what they're doing. So I think for anyone who's supporting a friend or a colleague or a student, uh, you know, that you need to have the, the capacity to offload uh, with others um, yourself. You can't, you can't be a hero and carry all of this. And you talk about that in the book about really just validating that everyone deserves the support that they're asking for and to understand that the place where you're asking for it may not be the place where you can have it, but that's not a signal of whether or not you deserve it. That's just that person or that place can't offer that right now. So go on to a next idea on the list or go on to the next person that you trust and say, do you have time right now to listen? I I need to uh, talk to you because I just emptied myself being there for someone else. There's so much about this in the in the book that helps people in, in any place in academia. And it it's really laid out chapter by chapter and, and lists of resources, as well as you generously showing your, your bibliography and, and linking bibliographies in every chapter so that people can really use this as a resource. And yet it's designed to be um, what's called pocket-sized, a little little big maybe for a pocket, but definitely could fit in a tote bag. And for many people would be a a size and weight that they could um, easily bring with them to different places as needed. Um, We are running out of time. So in the few minutes we have left, um, I'd like to ask you, what do you hope this episode will spark for listeners? Well, I think 
I mean, I'm very passionate, as hopefully people can tell, about the kind of whole idea of advice giving and us as sort of as community members just helping one another and sort of this connectivity and the idea of sort of solidarity and community and friendship. So I hope that people who are doing that already feel like they're doing the right thing and can share what they're doing. I'd love to hear what other people are doing, I, I, whether that's inside academia or not. And I, I also hope it gets people interested in the genre of self-help itself because it's I mean I, I I have a real love-hate relationship with it. I think it's an amazing thing when done well and it can also be really you know damaging and dangerous but I think it's it's often forgotten about and when it is talked about it's a sort of joke so I, I think encouraging people to think about how we can use resources how we can critique what we're using how we can you know uh, reimagine it or, or break it or, or reuse it to to our own purposes um, but I, I think the main thing is really for people who are listening to feel safe in the knowledge and comforted in the fact that that although we may feel very alone although we may feel that there are moments of hopelessness and i i certainly have been in those moments many times that 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 is not true you you may feel like you you are the only person going through something or that the pain you're in at this moment will never ever get better um but actually there is always going to be somebody somewhere and it might be that person at the end of the helpline or it might be that friend that comes through with the text or it might even be that that morning you know you're feeling really hopeless and you woke up and the sunrise was really beautiful it sounds very corny but people are helped in all manner of ways and i think that that if it helps you and it's not hurting other people we should be open to whatever ways are helping us get through at the moment and ways that we can help one another and as we do that that we grow strength from one another and i think look towards standing up against injustice you know we've got whole worries around climate around political change around global change and still with this pandemic and other diseases and health problems around the world that I think we can, we are stronger together. Um, and I hope that that's something else that people could maybe take from this. And people are going to have lots of different opinions on how we can do that. But if you've got examples, again, you want to share, I would love to know about them and, and to pass them on and to maybe use them in my own work with other people. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Petra Boyton, and introducing us to your book, Being Well in Academia, Ways to Feel Stronger, Safer, and More Connected. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.